Welcome to the teaching ministry of Temple Baptist Church. While we hope you can join us in person, our prayer is that this message will encourage you to love God and serve Him in a deeper way. Well, good morning to everyone. Great to see you. I feel, I feel like I should be able to say, great to see you on this beautiful spring day. I feel like that's what I should say. But instead, i got to say, great to see you on this cold, damp, freezing rain, yucky, when is spring going to come day? You know, this morning I was praying and I said, Lord, I know the Bible says rejoice, for this is the day that the Lord hath made. I am struggling today, I said to him. So um, it seems to me spring was supposed to arrive three weeks ago. That's what it said on the calendar anyway. And um, anyway, for those who are uh, new here for the first time, I uh, just want to let you know my name is Donald and I'm one of the pastors here that get the privilege to serve this incredible family. And that's what is so good about uh, Temple. It's family. With all of our bruises and bumps and warts and challenges and difficulties, we are family. And that makes uh, this place a pretty special place. And speaking of family, I just also wanted to... Um, uh, let you know that uh, we have been praying, of course, for two particular families this week. One is the uh, Uran family. And uh, Thursday, if you hadn't heard, of course, they had to lay to rest a 10-month-old um, baby. And that's been obviously very hard and challenging. And then uh, yesterday, uh, we had a service for the Nadeau family. Uh, we prayed last Sunday in the service, actually, for this family as they were in the hospital. And Little Lucien uh, passed away, and little six-year-old fighting cancer for the last year, and so continue to pray for those two families. I, I, I really do feel, I said this yesterday in the service, but I, I feel like it's been a privilege for us as a church to be able to journey together uh, with the Nadeau family this last year. Uh, we didn't know them, they weren't from this church, and, uh, and then we got this privilege to be able to connect with this family and to help, and uh, I just want to say how proud I am of this church, uh, just what you have been doing for those who are grieving, so thank you. Uh, as family, again, for those who are new, I just want to let you know, as a family, we have this burden, kind of this passion, this deep desire that people would be connected to Jesus and connected to one another. That's kind of our mission, and uh, we honestly believe that being connected to Jesus is a game changer. Like, it just turns our world upside down. And um, we believe that the most important relationship, honestly, that's what we believe, that the most important relationship is a relationship with Jesus. And uh, also, we just, we think life is better when you do it together. And so that's why we're always trying to connect um, uh, people together. Uh, we believe you need each other in each other's lives. And so that's what we strive to do. Well, a few weeks ago on Easter Sunday, we began this brand new series called Done. And, and I'm basing this series on those last uh, few words that Jesus spoke just before he took his last breath. When he said, it is finished. It's done. Everything that you ever needed to, be, to have in a relationship with God was done. Everything that you ever needed to have your sins forgiven was done. Everything that you ever needed to have hope was done. Everything that you've ever needed to experience the grace of God was done. 
Everything you ever needed to experience the mercy of God was done on that resurrection Sunday. Jesus says everything that he came to accomplish was completed, finished, done. And from those words, we are looking at what Jesus actually accomplished when he said it's done. Like, what does that mean? What was done? What was the results of him saying it is done? So that's where we're kind of going in this series. Now, the word done, I mean, it's four simple words, D-O-N-E. And those four letters combined make a word, a small word, but boy, that word delivers a a powerful punch. It's full of meaning. It communicates volumes when, when Jesus says it's finished or it's done. And, and I don't know if you are much of a words person or not, but I was looking up um, this week and I found out there's 171,462 words in the dictionary. It took me a long time to count through every one of them, but that's how many words there are in the dictionary. Now, I don't have a large vocabulary. I have probably, I know about 300 words. Seriously, I have a very small vocabulary. But there is over 171,000 words that are currently used. I also discovered that there's just over 47,000 words that are no longer uh, used. They're obsolete. Nobody knows what they mean anymore. And then I discovered there's, there's a thousand new words every year added to the dictionary. We're still making up brand new words and they're being added to the dictionary. And then there are those words that aren't, they haven't made it to the dictionary yet. They're common, they're being used, but they haven't officially made it to the dictionary. Some of those words are droney. Anybody familiar with that word, droney? Droney means it's someone who is obsessed with selfies from a drone. They, they buy a drone so they can take pictures of themselves, right? That's, that's a droney. Uh, of course, this time of year, we may be familiar with the word sprinter, which is that season between spring and winter. You know, like, where is it? What happened, right? Sprinter, it's actually, it's actually used. Sp- sprummer, that's spring and summer. That season, you never know if summer's coming. It's being used. People are saying it. Bike tendering. Bike t- not hasn't made it to the dictionary yet, but it's a word that's been commonly used. It's bartending on a bicycle. (laughs) Never heard of such a thing. But hey, here's some words that were added to the dictionary just recently. And you probably know this. Uh, Just in 2012, bromance, right? Bromance. That's kind of a close relationship the guys have, non-sexual relationship, but it's close. There's a bond. Oftentimes they would say uh, President Obama and uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, they had a bromance going on, people used to say about that. Uh, then there's chillaxin. That's, that's like, you know, you're calm down, you're relaxing. Hey, I'm chillaxin. That's a word that just was added to the dictionary. Never heard of this one, actually, but it has been just added this year. Drool-worthy. So if anyone ever says to you, you're drool-worthy, that is a compliment, okay? That's a compliment. Uh, locavore. Locavore. Uh, that is a person whose diet only consists of things grown locally. So nothing out of Lambton County would they put in their mouth if they're a locavore. Screenager, that's a new word. Uh, I was thinking about when I first read it, screenager, oh, must be a teenager, spends a lot of time on the screen, sort of, but it's actually a a teenager who, who has an aptitude for computers and the internet. And of course, there's all kinds of extra words. But this year, 
this year, in 2018, there's been a few new words added. And so I just thought I would share you with them. One is breadcrumbing. Anybody familiar with that? Like even our next generation people, breadcrumbing. If you're accused of breadcrumbing, it's not good. I actually thought breadcrumbing, I, you know, uh, sometimes, ever play Boulder Dash? And you know, they give you a word, you try to figure out the definition. So I thought, okay, breadcrumbing, breadcrumbing. Oh, it must be when you dry out bread and maybe rub your hands and make crumbs. Makes sense, breadcrumbing. No. Breadcrumbing is a popular term used in dating when someone will send you an occasional message to maintain your interest but is reluctant to actually fully commit. That's breadcrumbing. You may know a few people like that. You may be dating somebody like that, actually. Um, mansplain. 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 That is... Um, uh, it's, it's explaining something to a woman by a man in a condescending way. You know, sometimes men do that. Like, oh, dear, let me explain that to you. Right? You kind of you feel like you're making it simpler. That's what they call mansplaining. Just a couple more. Phonesia. Phonesia. Okay, if you were given that word in Boulder Dash, I don't know what you would say, but here's what it is. I, at first you think phonesia. Oh, phonesia. Oh, maybe you forget amnesia. You forget where you've laid your phone. Um, I have that problem. That's why I have a tile. You have one of those tiles on your keys. You press the tile on your keys and your phone rings wherever it is. Or if you lose your keys, you press your, pho your phone and your keys ring wherever they are. I love it. It has saved me. Lots of frustration. Well, phonesia is when you've actually called somebody, the phone is ringing, they pick up the other end, and you forget who you called. That's phonesia, okay? And then all of a sudden, they answer hello, and you go, who is this? And they go, you're calling me. Like, that's phonesia. Uh, just two more. Intoxication. Not intoxication, but Intoxication is a euphoria of getting a tax refund that lasts until you realize it was your own money to begin with. That's intoxication, okay? And then just added in 2018, this year, I think it's something we probably have all done. It's called disconfect, disconfect. I say probably most people have done this here. Disconfect is the attempt to sterilize a piece of candy that you've dropped on the floor by blowing on it. <laughs> Ever done that? Is that 10 second rule? What? <laughs> you put it back in. Uh, someone actually told me, I was talking about this yesterday and someone said to me, well, we don't have a, a 10 second rule in our house. We have a 10 day rule. <laughs> if you can still blow it off after 10 days, that's good. So. Um, New words with new meanings. But that got me thinking about familiar words. Familiar words and their meanings. Words that, words that we hear so often that we don't even take notice of anymore. Words that we don't pay attention uh, to them. And one of those words that I want to talk about uh, for the next few minutes, the word, it's grace. It's assumed that we know what grace is, because we throw that word around all the time, especially in church circles. Grace. And there's a lot of content in the Bible that explains grace. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in his writings, uses the word grace over a hundred times. 
when he's talking about grace. And, and a great definition that he gives is actually found in Ephesians. Let me read it for you. He says, for the blood of Christ, we are set free. That is, our sins have been forgiven. How great is the grace of God, which he gives in such, such large measures. That's a, that's a great definition of grace. It is the blood of Christ that we have grace. Not because of anything that we've ever done. Not because we have a great ability to be a rule keeper. It's the blood of Christ. It's because Christ took our sin upon himself that we have grace. Now, now that explanation, it's helpful, okay? But I really believe that if you really want to know what grace is, you got to experience it. More than just being able to define it, it's experiencing it. More than just having a good definition. When I grew up, I could remember this as a kid, we, we had an acronym. You'd go G-R-A-C-E. We'd say God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what grace was when I was growing up. And I remember that. It's a, great, it's a great definition. But if you really want to know what grace is, it's more than just a definition. It's, it's experiencing grace. Much like people will say romantic love. You know, you can, you can get a definition of what romantic love is. And, and, and some doctors will be able to tell you all the neurological things that are going on in the heads and what goes on and what buzzes and all that kind of stuff. But until you experience romantic love, it's hard to really know what it is. I'll tell you, um, when I was in Virginia, I was a youth pastor. And, and I was speaking on, um, to the teenagers about dating. And one of the guys in the back said, Donald, what do you know about dating? And uh, I said, I, I know a lot. I've read a lot about dating. He says, Donald, until you experience it, you really don't know. And so the next week, he made me this shirt. It said, it actually said, Pastor Don knows, and it went dot, dot, dot. It said, Pastor Don knows hockey. Pastor Don knows counseling. Pastor Don knows youth pastoring. But, dot, 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 dot. In the back, it said, he don't know diddly about girls. <laughs> There's something about the experience that helps you really understand something. A story, uh, an experience to best understand grace. And if you've never experienced grace, it's really pretty hard to understand what it is. And it's those stories uh, in the Bible that can kind of give, paint a bigger picture of what grace is. I mean, you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you'll, you'll read about grace. Now, it's interesting, Jesus actually never uses the word grace. You read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Nowhere does Jesus ever actually use the word grace. And here's the Apostle Paul. He uses it over a hundred times. And yet John tells us that Jesus was full of grace and truth, and it's just built out all over people. And when you read those stories about Jesus, you go, wow, that's what grace is. I mean, just think about when he called the disciples we've talked about this a few times already when he called the disciples uh, and, and he called fishermen like he was putting his posse together that those renegades to be his disciples and and, and that day and age when Jesus was um, alive on earth it was common for a rabbi to have disciples 
And, you know, sometimes there'd be people, there'd be certain rabbis that were very popular, and people wanted to be their disciple. And so it was almost like they, uh, people would fill out an application, and, and I want to be your disciple, and, you know, and I'd put my references down, and then they'd gather those applications, and they would review them, and those rabbis would be looking who, to find out who are the sharpest, the brightest, the keenest, the best. Uh, the one who looks like they'll have a bright future, the ones who could be uh, movers and shakers, and they'd go through the references, and, and once they found out the top, the cream of the crop, they would invite them to be a disciple of theirs. But that's not how Jesus uh, does it. I like how one pastor says, Jesus doesn't accept applications. Jesus offers invitations to be a disciple of his. And he offers invitations to, for those who would never make the cut if they were just simply applying to be a disciple of a rabbi. And Jesus goes around and he's inviting people, people like fishermen, and then, and then he goes into the marketplace you know, where, the, where, where business is being done and um, he, he recognizes somebody over at a booth um, doing his business. Uh, it's not the right way of saying it. Doing his business sounds like he's at the bathroom. Like he's conducting business, I mean, like he's conducting business at his booth. And um, he goes over. First of all, people are shocked that he's headed over toward a guy who's actually at his booth and he's a tax collector. First of all, that shocks people right there. What in the world? Where is Jesus going? Why is he headed toward that guy over there? And he goes over to this tax collector, Matthew, and he just says, Matthew, come follow me. Come follow me. Now, that particular point, I, uh, you got to know, tax collectors are, are not known for their virtue. Um, tax collector is synonymous with crook. And so Jesus goes up, and he invites this guy to be one of his disciples. Like, tax collectors don't even have friends. I mean, the only friends they're ever going to have are other tax collectors. Nobody wants to befriend a tax collector. They're despised by the Jewish people. And yet... This is the guy who gets the invitation by Jesus. Now, I often wonder, when I read stories like that, I, I kind of try to imagine the whole scenario. I, I've often wondered, when Jesus was headed in that direction, and when he finally blurted out the words, you know, Matthew, come and follow me, I've often wondered if people went up to him, Jesus, are you, don't be so naive. Do you know who that is? Like, do you know who that is? He's a tax collector. Do you understand that having somebody hang out with somebody like that could ruin your reputation? This could bring this whole thing crumbling down around your ears. Trust me, Jesus, there are better people that you could call to be your disciple. There are far better people. Um, Matthew, the tax collector, really? You would invite him to be a disciple of yours? Jesus, do you realize that if if you required Matthew to fill out an application to be a disciple, he wouldn't even be able to find a reference for him. This is not the kind of guy. And, and, and then sometimes I think, well, maybe some people thought Jesus was being sarcastic. Maybe they thought, oh, he's just playing games. Come hey, Matthew, want to be a disciple of mine? Like, that would never happen. You know, maybe some people thought Jesus was sarcastic. Or maybe people thought Jesus was just trying to be funny, that he would invite that kind of person to follow him. You know, maybe they thought Jesus was a good actor when he made that invitation. 
Jesus, you almost convinced me that you wanted a tax collector to be part of the team, part of the disciples. And the thing is, he wasn't acting. He wasn't joking. He wasn't being sarcastic. It was a genuine invitation. Matthew, come follow me. And I read that story, and, and, and I, I, I can't help but think about his parents. Like, who were Matthew's parents? Like, were, were Matthew's parents, like, embarrassed by the profession that their son had chosen? Like, like, what were they thinking? Like, were they thinking, why would our son, after we have raised him, choose this kind of lifestyle, a tax collector? This would bring shame on a family that somebody, because they're crooks. They'd rob you blind. You know, maybe in early in his life, they, this parents might have thought, oh, our son is really good at numbers, but never had dreamed he would go in that direction with his life. I would assume, like most Jewish families, they had desires that their boys would become rabbis, men of influence. But that's not Matthew. Matthew has chosen something that most parents would have been, oh, I can't believe my son. If, if they were asked, what does your son do for a living? Oh, he, he works in town. Like not really wanting to give all the details. That's, that's the kind of disgrace that was put on someone in this kind of a position. The simple invitation by Jesus to Matthew, though, explains grace much better than any definition that you could give. Because the story tells us that no matter what you have done, no matter what you have become, no matter what people say of you, no matter what people think of you, you still get an invitation. You still get the invitation. Because grace has not given up on you. Grace can still rewrite your life story. That's grace. And there's something from this story that captures grace that a definition just can't. You know, I think of other stories. Think of in, in John chapter 4, right? There's the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Um, Jews and Samaritans didn't mix. In fact, you read history and and even though it would have been a shorter path to go through Samaria, most Jews would actually much rather walk all around Samaria than actually have to step foot in Samaria. And then you read a story where Jesus is at the well. He's thirsty. And, and the Bible says he had to go through Samaria, which is interesting because we're like, why would you have to? Nobody has to go through Samaria. But it says he had to. The disciples go in the town to find him the food. He's there by himself at a well, and this woman comes up to him, and he initiates the conversation well first of all just that blows her out of the water like whoa why are you talking to me you do know i'm a samaritan woman and you're a jew like why would you even engage in a conversation with me and then jesus says you know would you give me a drink of water and she's confused like why would you come to a well without being able to find get water yourself and then it turns into this big conversation about living water and Jesus says that she can, she can drink from a, the living water where she never thirsts anymore. And she's trying to figure out what Jesus is talking about. And then finally, it gets to the conversation where really he explains, you know, believe on me. And Jesus says, go get your husband and come on back. And she says, I, I, don't, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says to her, you're right. You're right when you say you don't have a husband. You've, ha you've, you've actually had five and the man you're with now is not even your husband. 
And then she's more awestruck, like, you know who I am. Like, you know me? And you still engage in this kind of conversation with me? And you still invite me? That's grace. That if I just gave a definition, would not fully paint a picture of what grace really is. I think of in in Luke chapter five, in fact, I'm gonna quickly look there. In Luke chapter five, we have this incredible story about a leper in Luke chapter five. I'll just read it to you really quickly. In Luke chapter five, verse 12 says, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. Not in the beginning stages, not where he was able to hide it under a shirt. It says, he was covered with leprosy, and when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean, and immediately the leprosy left him. When you have leprosy, you are given a life sentence. A life sentence of never being able to have anyone ever hug you again. Your loved ones, this community, like you, there, there's no more contact. You are literally ushered out to a colony outside the city. You're never allowed to come back in again. It's over. The people that you love, the career that you've always enjoyed, gone, taken from you. It is a life sentence. Now, the miracle that Jesus performs here shows his power, but it's his touch that reveals his grace. I mean, he's covered in leprosy. He doesn't touch the man before he's cleaned up. He touches the man when he's covered. He could have stayed a safe distance away. He could have said, hey, listen, hey, when you get yourself cleaned up, then, you know, when you're no longer affected by this disease, I'll touch you. But he touches the leper despite the fact that his body is wrecked and deformed and diseased. Nobody touched lepers because it was so contagious. Nobody wanted it. And yet, it's his touch that shows the grace of God. And and this is huge. This is something you'll hear all the time in church. People outside the church will say, as soon as I get my life back back in order, I'm going to start coming to church again. (laughs) You know, as soon as I get things right with God... I'll show up. You know, I got to get some control first over my addictions. I got to get some control over my struggles. You know, when I get some, some relationships right, you know, when I get things cleaned up, when, when I come back to God, but I need, to, I need to fix things first in my life. But this is not what grace does. Grace touches you and heals you where you are, not after you get all fixed up. You don't have to clean yourself up you don't have to wash yourself up you come as you are grace meets you right where you are that's grace another story in in john chapter 8 just got a few of them we're looking at here that kind of paints this picture of of grace john chapter 8 many would be familiar with this story jesus is teaching you know at the temple 
and, and there's a big crowd. And, and I can imagine people are asking questions. He's talking. He's engaging. And way in the distance, there's some, you know, there's a little bit of noise or a ruckus happening, but they're still engaging. And all of a sudden, the noise gets a little bit louder. And it seems like there's a little bit of yelling going on and voices. And all of a sudden, you hear the shouting. And all of a sudden, right in the midst, you, you see a couple of men dragging a lady, and they kind of throw this woman right at Jesus' feet. Now, now here's Jesus. He's teaching People are there listening, want to learn the things of God. And all of a sudden, in the midst, chaos, they just throw a woman at his feet. And these religious leaders say, hey, we have caught a woman in the very act of adultery. And I, in my mind, I kind of picture they literally caught her. And, and I just picture like she's got a bed sheet wrapped around her and they just throw her in front of everybody to see, oh, she is exposed. And they say to Jesus, the law says we should stone such a woman. What do you say? Now, you would think maybe, well, they just wanted justice. That's the law. No, no, no. They wanted justice. They would have brought two people, a man and a woman. They weren't looking for justice. They were trying to set Jesus up. They were trying to trap him. Everybody is watching. Everybody in that crowd knows the law. She's committed adultery. The law says you need to be stoned to death. It's black and white. No discussions needed. They could have dragged her off to some religious judges. They would have condemned her. They would have immediately taken her outside the city and they would begin to stone her and kill her. They might not even contact the family in time. And there would have been a woman outside the city being stoned by the people that hated her with no one around that loved her. I am sure it was never this little girl's dream that one day she would grow up to be an adulterer. I'm sure it was never one day she dreamt, one day I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sleep with another woman's husband. But that is what her life has become. And in front of everyone, her sin is exposed. And she realizes in that moment, I have... I just have minutes to live. Like, I am minutes away. Like, she's facing death in her eyes. She's just getting ready for the first stone to be flung at her. And in all of her shame and, and trying to cover up her shame, maybe with a bedsheet, she can't even defend herself because she was caught in the very act. She can't claim, well, you've misidentified me as somebody else that looks like me. No, she can't say I'm not that woman. Like there's no room for doubt in the jury's mind. It's plain and simple. The verdict needs to be guilty. As I said, they were, these religious leaders were just so anxious to catch Jesus in a trap. When they asked him that question, they were trying to set Jesus up. Now, Jesus knows this woman. He has known this woman since her mother's womb. He knows the hair, how many hairs are on her head. And in that tender, graceful moment, he looks at the woman, he looks at the crowd, he says, hey, go ahead, throw the stone if you have no sin in your life. Be the first one to step up and cast a stone. 
if you have no sin. Somehow, nobody does anything. Somehow, they know that he knows their story. Somehow, he knows what they thought nobody ever knew about them in that moment. And then you know what Jesus does? He doesn't give a definition of grace. Let me tell you what grace is. No. He doesn't try to explain grace. He just lives it out. This is what grace looks like. And so in that moment, the stones are dropped. The Bible says everybody walked away. Imagine this large crowd. Everybody was anxious for justice. They're all going to pick up a stone from the ground. And it says everybody. Everybody. Oh. Oh, I. Oh, yeah. That would, oh, that's me. And it just says quietly they left. Until it's just Jesus and this lady. And he says, has anyone condemned you? And she says, no. No one, sir. I don't know if she even knows what's going to happen next. She doesn't know what to expect. And he says, well, then neither do I condemn you. Now go leave your life of sin and sin no more. You see what I mean when I say there's something in a story that teaches grace much more than a definition can of what grace is. I am sure that if you took out all the stories of Jesus and just left us with a definition of grace, it would not have the impact that these stories do. Because it really helps us understand what grace is like. And we begin to think, well, if it could be true for that man, if it could be true for that lady, then maybe it could be true for me. Jesus never uses the word grace, and yet he is constantly teaching us about grace, even while on the cross. Now imagine that. He's dying, and he's still living out grace. Six hours, he's bleeding, he's suffering, trying to grab a breath on that cross. And he's looking around, he sees his own countrymen who have clamored for his death, the soldiers who had nailed um, the nails, pounded the nails in his hands. And, and as he's hanging there, thinking about the false accusations that were made about him, maybe thinking about his one disciple who betrayed him with a kiss, thinking about his friends who denied him and then ran for cover. And with all of that on his mind, you know what he says? Father, you forgive them? They don't even know what they're doing. What? You would, have, you would have thought maybe, Father, this is the moment. Get even with them. No. Even in his last breath, he is, he's living out grace. What grace is. You know, all of heaven, I believe, was watching and waiting for the word, waiting for Jesus to say, come and rescue me. Come and take me off this cross. And they would have done it in a blink of an eye. And here's Jesus getting, maybe just coughing, <coughs> getting ready to say a few words and all of heaven is hushed because they're waiting for the order to come. And then he goes and says, 
Forgive them. Forgive them. That's grace. That teaches us what grace is. And when I ask you to define grace, really what I'm asking is, what's your story? What's your story? How has God's grace impacted your life? You know, there are a few lines that people use, and I'll hear it frequently. They say, well, I, I can't experience grace. I go, why? Why can't you experience grace? Why can't you enjoy what God has freely offered you? They'll say, not after what I've done, though. Not after what I've done. They look back over their life and they realize that there was a season maybe where things really got ugly. And, and they convince themselves there's just no way. Not after what I've done. You know, they might be able to give a definition of grace. They might be able to share other people's stories of grace. But they've never experienced grace. See, grace applies to others but not to me because, well, I've, because of what I've done. It's beyond God's grace. You know, you can understand grace, you can define grace, but if you've never experienced grace, it's hard to know what it really means. That no matter my past, grace is greater than our sins. But it isn't just the Bible stories, it's our stories that we need to share with people to let them know <laughs> wow. Grace is still powerful. Grace is still greater than my sin. Maybe, just maybe I could experience grace when we share our stories. You know, sometimes people say, it's not because of what I've done, but it's because of what someone has done to me that I can't experience grace. I can't do it, right? I mean, you're not dealing with the guilt and the shame. You're struggling with the bitterness and anger. You know, we've been hurt so deeply. And it isn't, who you want to be, but it's just, just how it works. It's hard to release it because if you do, you feel like the person who's offended you or hurt you, they're getting away with it because they owe you something. Maybe they owe you money. Maybe they owe you a marriage. Maybe they owe you your childhood back. And you say, I, I, I can't do it because that, they'll get away with it. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, he tells us as followers of grace, Get rid of the bitterness and the anger and the resentment because if you don't, it gives the devil a foothold in your life. It actually grieves the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is trying to grow the fruit of the Holy Spirit in us. You know, life and our life, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. The Spirit is trying to grow these things in us, but bitterness chokes it all out and we all of a sudden allow these offenses to pop into our minds like we press the play button and we can't let it go and it's so offensive if we do let it go and the apostle paul is not saying nothing well just let it go and don't worry about it but what he's saying is the the burden is too heavy for you to carry You just can't go on like this. The weight is affecting you. 
I gotta let God deal with it. I had to do this last year myself, personally. I really, like, I have experienced God's grace in my life, but boy, there was something that happened a year ago that really, I struggled. I, I struggled. I did not want to offer that person grace. I've experienced it. But I just felt like the hurt was too much. But finally, I get to the point, I couldn't carry it anymore. It just got too weighty on me. And every time I would think about it, I would just like, that play button, all the stuff and the things that were said, and like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. And I finally just had to say, I can't, I can't do this anymore, God. I can't. Would you, would you give me grace to do it? Because I can't do it on my own strength. You know, sometimes people will say, especially, I've heard this, this has been given to me as advice all the time. You know what, Donald? You need to, you need to have a tough skin, a soft heart. I go, uh-huh. Yeah, I wish I could do that. How do you do that? Have this tough exterior and be still soft inside. I, I read um, a quote by Winston Churchill a couple weeks ago. It said, you'll never reach your destiny if you stop and throw stones at every dog that barks at you. <sighs> okay. I try to remember that. I read this recently. The dog's... Uh, the dogs bark, but the caravan still keeps moving forward. Keep going. Don't let it get to you. I try sometimes those things, but it does get to me. And so that's when I really, okay, I can't do this on my own strength, God. I need something that only you can give me. Grace. So replace what has been done to you with what God has done for you. And then finally, People will say, I can't experience grace, not after what my life has become. It's too late. It's too complicated. My life is busted. I just can't see how God could redeem this mess. I like this grace stuff for other people, but I'm beyond it. I can't see how grace can get me out of this. Your past does not need to be the predictor of your future. Years of bitterness and anger and resentment, honestly, can melt away when you experience the grace of God because you can become a different person. Grace is greater than the diagnosis that you've been given. It's greater than a childhood experience that you've had to live through. It's greater than the secrets that you have kept. And it's greater than the addictions that you have battled. Grace may not have healed your child, but grace will hold you up. Grace may not heal you of cancer, but grace will carry you through. Grace may not rescue you from your circumstances, but grace will redeem your circumstances. No matter how often you have failed, no matter how often you have fallen, grace is greater. No matter how many times you have relapsed, grace is greater. 
Because grace is nothing about what we do or what we have done. It's about what Jesus has done. That's grace. So grace is powerful enough to erase your guilt. Grace is big enough to cover your shame. Grace is real enough to heal your relationships. Grace is strong enough to hold you up when you're weak. Grace is sweet enough to cure your bitterness. Grace is beautiful enough to redeem your brokenness. Grace is satisfying enough to deal with your disappointments. You may have given up on grace, but grace has not, been, has not given up on you. Grace is more than a definition. Grace is an experience. And the story of your life can be that grace is greater. Let's pray. Father, this morning we, um, we thank you for thank you for grace Lord where would we be today if it wasn't for the grace of God thank you God for redeeming us thank you for seeing us in our need thank you for accomplishing all that needed to be accomplished for us to be experienced grace and Lord for someone maybe that's here this morning someone that's listening who's who could give a great definition of grace who could explain what grace is maybe give examples of other people but they've never experienced it. God, our prayer is this morning that nobody would leave here without experiencing personally the grace of God in their life because of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.